to By Any Means Necessary, your radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be marking seven years since the racist police killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, and how the movement for black lives has developed from them until now in the time of George Floyd. Also going to be talking about dynamics between Iran and Israel, as well as an update and the economy. And as always at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie. Tell them what's on your mind. Well, a year after the racist vigilante killing of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman in Sanford, Florida, and just a few months before the extrajudicial public execution of young Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Ohio, the case of the killing of Michael Brown by Ferguson police on this day in 2014, allegedly over the theft of some cheap convenience store cigars, is the incident that galvanized the long fight against the steady barrage of state-sanctioned police terrorism against black and brown and poor people and grew it into a national mass movement. Now, there have been lots of arguments about details in the case that some people use to discredit those movements, the movement for black lives and the movement against police terrorism, particularly the part about the DOJ investigation not proving conclusively that Michael Brown had his hands up when he was shot to death by Ferguson cop Darren Wilson. But today, I think there are some things we have to recenter about this case because these things speak to exactly where we are in the struggle today. People who often cite that the DOJ report proves that the hands up, don't shoot narrative weren't true, never seem to remember that the same DOJ report describes a racist, abusive, out-of-control police department that targeted black people in Ferguson, Missouri, stopped and searched them without reasonable suspicion, arrested them without probable cause, abused their authority to quash protests, routinely ignored civil rights, and used excessive force by unnecessarily using dogs, batons, and tasers on them. The DOJ report noted that Ferguson cops made heavy use of a municipal failure to comply ordinance, which they interpreted as giving them the right to arrest anyone who disobeys them at any time. The report noted that, quote, officers expect and demand compliance even when they lack legal authority. They're inclined to interpret the exercise of free speech rights as unlawful disobedience, innocent movements as physical threats, indications of mental or physical illness as belligerence. Police supervisors and leadership do too little to ensure that officers act in accordance with law and policy and rarely respond meaningfully to civilian complaints of officer misconduct. That's a direct quote from the DOJ report. The DOJ put this down in writing in 2015 about the Ferguson Police Department and their pattern and practices. And we know that this is the attitude among cops and police departments across this country today. We've been telling America that this is how the cops act. 
But people are still citing this ridiculous just comply mantra with cops today when they make demands of people that they have no real legal authority or necessity to carry out. And when black and Latinx and poor people resist these unreasonable demands and assert our alleged constitutional rights, you know, like when the cops demand ID when no crime has been indicated and no reasonable suspicion that one was committed is given by the cops, then cops take that completely constitutional refusal to obey unreasonable demands as failure to comply. And they, the cops, escalate the encounter, sometimes to deadly consequences. The DOJ report on Ferguson, Ferguson has a population of around 21,000, give or take a few, also showed that even though Black people made up 67% of the population of the city, they accounted for 85% of all traffic stops, received 90% of the citations, and accounted for 93% of the arrests. So did no white people ever commit crime in Ferguson? Of course not. But that's the narrative so many white people in this country want to believe that black and Latinx people have more contact with the police simply because we commit more crime and that white people are simply more law abiding and more decent and more hardworking and more honest. And the rest of us are just criminally minded, lazy miscreants who are always laying in wait to take from someone else. And the cops have to stop us. But the DOJ report on Ferguson eviscerated that narrative with the myriad ways that not only the police, but the entire legal system in Ferguson preyed on working class and poor black people with excessive tickets and fines that were used to not only oppress people, but to raise revenue. And doesn't that just sound like capitalism? The DOJ report said that the city of Ferguson used its police department as, quote, a collection agency, which is how many black residents saw the cops anyway, a brutal racist collection agency for the city of Ferguson. Aggressive enforcement of the city's municipal code drove patrol assignments and schedules and officer evaluations and promotions depended largely on the number of citations issued. And most of these citations were issued to the city's working class and poor black residents to the point that a significant portion of the city's revenue came from those fines and fees. The DOJ report showed that in 2010, the city's municipal court generated $1.3 million in fines and fees. This is in a city of 21,000 people, folks, and the city's budget anticipated fines and fees of $3.9 million when the DOJ investigation was done in 2015. The DOJ report exposed that just about every branch of Ferguson government, police, Municipal Court, City Hall participated in unlawful targeting of African-American residents with the millions of dollars in fines and fees paid by black residents serving the ultimate goal of satisfying revenue rather than public safety needs. Ferguson was so successful at extracting funds from black people in the city through tickets and fines that it was ranked in the top eight of the 80 municipal courts in St. Louis County by having more than one million dollars in revenue in 2010. 
When Ferguson court revenues exceeded $2 million in 2012, the city manager responded to the police chief in an internal email saying, awesome, thanks. So when we're talking about defunding the police, this is what we're talking about. All this garbage about taking money from the cops and that makes it harder for them to keep us safe when really the exorbitant budgets of too many police departments go to patterns and practices that not only do not provide any safety to the communities they occupy, because they're not occupying rich white communities, y'all, but they are used to produce revenue by criminalizing the very movement and existence of the black and brown people in these occupied communities. As recently as 2019, journalists at the Conversation website noticed that the cities seemingly most reliant on fines are the ones with the highest percentages of black residents being served by law enforcement that is whiter than the community they serve. And even Forbes magazine noted in 2020 that policing should not be about generating profit. But it is still in cities across the country with significant black and brown working class and poor populations. Cops are still the collection agents for those cities, robbing working class brown and black and poor people of not just their money through excessive petty municipal tickets and fines, but of their rights and too often of their lives. So maybe if we had spent more time focusing on these systemic violations that the DOJ report on Ferguson exposed that led to Michael Brown's murder by cop Darren Wilson, rather than arguing with white people about whether Michael Brown had his hands up or not, maybe if we had focused on these systemic issues that were right there in the report, we wouldn't still have to be explaining what defunding the police really is. And maybe we would have done more of it more extensively by now but it's not too late. Follow Luke Mon Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points and you are listening to it by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We are now happy to be joined by Christine Hendricks, president to the University City School Board, Junior Bayard Rustin Fellow with the Fellowship for Reconciliation and contributor to the Truth Telling Project and We Stay Woke podcast. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. And Christine, of course, today marks seven years since Mike Brown was killed by Officer Darrison Wilson, excuse me, by Officer Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, uh, something that catalyzed not only an uprising in Ferguson itself, but also kicked off, in my opinion, the movement for black lives in earnest, although the seeds forward had really been planted with the racist vigilante killing of Trayvon Martin a couple years before. And just sort of looking at how the movement has developed 
from uh, the Mike Brown moment to now the time of George Floyd, I think is really something we should look closely at, Christine, in terms of, uh, you know, where energies are sort of being spent and sort of the ways that people are really approaching and trying to resolve the uh, question of racist policing in different ways. I mean, for instance, in uh, Minneapolis, of course, where uh, George Floyd was uh, killed by Officer Derek Chauvin, there's actually a new effort to try to uh, disband the Minneapolis uh, Police Department. And this is the initiative of, you know, several members of the city council and activists uh, who tried to do this a little while ago, although it wasn't able to come about. But they're basically proposing that the police be um, replaced by a public safety department that uh, would engage in what they call a, quote, comprehensive public health approach with um, licensed peace officers, if necessary, according to their language. And uh, this would not be under the uh, command of Mayor uh, Jacob Frey, as the police are, of course, Frey, someone who has uh, been against uh, this whole thing of disbanding the department to begin with. But I mean, just seeing um, how the organizing how has unfolded and how the movement really has, you know, grown uh, by, by leaps and bounds, I think, in the time since Mike Brown's uh, uh, death, Christine. I mean, you know, as someone who was there, I'm just curious how how it's all sort of striking you in this moment, because I think a lot of times, you know, tragedy is a springboard for, you know, transformative change. And it really feels like people are moving to where, you know, try to organize society in a way to where, you know, uh, justice is sort of baked into the society itself instead of having to, you know, use these tragic incidents as a catalyst, if you will. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, it's, it's, it feels like as though people do not pay attention to the systemic issues that we have going on until we have a catalyst such as Mike Brown or George Floyd or anyone in the number of, you know, black or brown men and women who have lost their um, lives to the police. Um, but I guess I kind of see the movement, I think sometimes we take two steps forward and in a sense, we, you know, we take a step back. Um, I think there's a lot of um, right wing reactionary um, politics that come into play, of course. And I think a lot of times uh, movements in and of themselves, while we do need to, um, you know, and envelop ourselves in progressive politics. Um, we have to understand that, you know, the, that politics is not the only way to, you know, uh, achieve the, the, the goals that we have in mind. We just have to use all the tools that we have in our belt. And I kind of see that, um, I, I see us doing that in a way. Um, but I just don't want us to move so far into politics that we, you know, um, as a movement progresses that we forget about, um, the streets because as, uh, representative Cory Bush, uh, showed us is that uh, sometimes even our politicians have to take it back to that, um, base street level to get the attention of other politicians and even the world just to highlight the injustices that still continue. Yeah. You know, that point about not relying solely on politics, I can't I can't help but, you know, recall how people were so excited about the uh, uh, appointment of of uh, prosecutor William Bell uh, to uh, uh, the position of district attorney, I think, in Ferguson after the uh, initial guy, I can't even remember his name right now, who you know, refused to uh, uh, charge Wilson, uh, lost his job. But then Bell 
turned around and also didn't charge Darren Wilson. So I think we have to remember these, you know, the, the shortcomings of politics in addressing these issues. And I'm wondering, Christine, if if you feel like uh, the reason we are having the same kind of, of conversations about the exact same issues uh, after the uh, murder of George Floyd that we were having after the murder of Michael Brown, because we just kind of didn't pay attention to like the one instance in one of the few instances in the history of the Department of Justice where they actually produced a document that laid out the evidence that said, hey, guess what? The people were actually right. This is really a horrible, racist, uh, a revenue generating, uh, awful uh, uh, a police department that's been abusing people. Do you think that one of the things that we didn't do very well in the movement in the streets was to uh, elevate that DOJ report and the the findings against the Ferguson Police Department and connect it to police departments across the country. Do you feel like we didn't do that as well as we should have? Yeah, I mean, I think that many of us really did that, and those are conversations that we were having. I would say that it's really a mainstream media issue that that they did not, you know, allow those voices to be raised and those thoughts to be connected. Um, you know, that's something that we had been talking about, you know, pre-Ferguson and post-Ferguson, even leading up into what happened uh, with George Floyd. So I think really that that boils down to, you know, the mainstream media a, a lot of times leaves out those things, which is why people are not connecting the dots uh, between, you know, uh, over-policing in neighborhoods and, you know, police abuse. So, um, I, I, I kind of like to try to put it in there because I feel like those are the messages that movement folks have been screaming from the top of their lungs. Um, people are choosing not to, to listen. And, and I think a lot of times people choose not to listen because they, you know, we, they have this idea that they've been propagandized and programmed to believe about um, police and police in general. And there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that come with that. And so many outside the, the activist community are not ready to let go of uh, what they perceive to be a safety net. And so they're willing to, um, you know, uh, not listen to or push that kind of inf- information under the rug so that they can soothe their, their fears about, you know, safety in, in their community. Well, you know, you've touched on something I think is important, Christine, because it's it's how people in our society equate police with safety. And that's why, you know, I think it's interesting when we see, you know, not only efforts, like I mentioned earlier in Minneapolis, but um, a big part of the conversation people has is, well, what does public safety mean? What does it really look like? You know, because the whole of public safety can't be uh, left to this armed wing of the capitalist state, which is the police. And see, people get very antsy when you begin to speak like that, because like you say, um, even if uh, they have critiques of police abuses and even if they criticize police for doing those sorts of things, a lot of people still ultimately believe that, you know, the police are needed and uh, all these sorts of things. And so I'm just sort of wondering how you see the importance of having sort of a real, I mean, political imagination. Uh, when it comes to these sorts of things and, and, and sort of, you know, reimagining not only like public safety specifically, but really just reimagining like what what community looks like and what a society can really look like if 
you know, we don't have this institution that is endowed uh, with the power over life and death, because that is what the police really hold. That is what allowed Darren Wilson to take uh, Mike Brown's life. That's what allowed a Derek Chauvin to, you know, uh, 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 kill George Floyd and so, so many others, Breonna Taylor, so many others that we know that we could name. Right. And so that seems to be um, one of the, the, the hard aspects of really organizing, which goes right back to your point about, you know, uh, making sure that we stay rooted in that grassroots orientation and make sure that we, we keep in our thinking and, you know, ourselves <laughs> in, in the streets. So we sort of understand um, how this really impacts poor and working class communities who, of course, feel the brunt of uh, racist police terror and sort of functioning from that. But it seems like there's a lot of, uh, you know, deprogramming and political education has to be done around sort of the real role uh, of the police and trying to sort of detach ourselves and each other from this notion that we can only be safe if police are around. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I think um, one way that really that can happen is a lot of activists and organizers are also artists and artists really can reach into that create that creative side of themselves and produce, you know, art or works of art that really speak to, you know, our imagination of what, you know, what does the world look like um, without policing? What, you know, can we write stories about that? Can we make movies and, and music about what what a world would look like, what community um, looks like? And I think, you know, that's one avenue that we can explore that also, you know, um, speaks to the cultural revolution that I also talk about um, a lot of times on your show as well. Is, you know, really getting our, our, our artists um, as part of um, our activism to, to reimagine our culture and reimagine a world that we've, we've actually never seen. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think that is helpful for us also as we continue this struggle, because certainly uh, the struggle is not letting up. I mean, because just as many people have been killed at, at the same rate as before when, you know, <laughs> we started this, you know, national movement for black lives or whatever, you know, whatever people, whatever way people want to characterize it, the national movement against, you know, racist police terrorism or whatever. But the cops have stopped, have not stopped killing people, Christine. And the, 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 the result of things like traffic stops and, uh, you know, mental health issues or people calling in for wellness checks or some domestic disturbance that are not violent encounters end up with someone dying at the hands of these cops. So, you know, aside from like the reactionary measures that some things that people, you know, suggest like a national registry of police misconduct and ending qualified immunity and establishing commissions and, you know, Justice Department consent decrees, which are which are all necessary things, but they're also you know, responding to a situation that already exists. You know, what what does the continued movement to change this culture of policing look like going forward? Oh, I think one place that we can actually look is um, that Denver, Colorado, who has started using, you know, um, people to respond, uh, the people that are not police to respond to those types of non-emergency calls. Um, so that's, you know, one way. And I think that that's something that people can be pushing for at the local level. Again, it's still 
um, a type of reform and does not necessarily get to some of the root um, issues, which um, a lot of times is poverty and capitalism. Um, but I think that it's something that can help, you know, put that Band-Aid on. But, I, but ultimately, we need to be fighting against um, capitalism, uh, patriarchy, you know, homophobia, all the isms, um, really, and just to continue to, you know, um, to keep the movement focused on those things, because once we fight those, um, other things, I believe, will fall into place. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I mean, it, it's true that, you know, we have to have a, a certain amount of like open mindedness and uh, uh, trust when we try these new measures out because they are, in fact, new. And so we have to see what works and uh, what doesn't, how things have to be p- perhaps tweaked or adjusted. But I mean, we know for a fact what doesn't work. And that's this sort of centuries running um, repressive policing system that we know emerges out of slavery itself. And absolutely, at some point, I think um, the sort of broader movement, the sort of broader progressive movement, if we want to call it that, uh, with all of its different issues and wings, will have to address itself, I think, explicitly to the capitalist system that is at the root of all these levels of exploitation. Well, we thank you so much, Christine, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about dynamics between Iran and Israel. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Dr. Syed Mohammed Marandi, professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. Dr. Marandi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Marandi, uh, here recently, Benny Gantz, the Israeli defense minister, has made some uh, disparaging and aggressive comments about Iran that uh, happened around the time of the inauguration of Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, someone that uh, the West has tarred with the name uh, of a hardliner. Of course, this comes as Israel claims that uh, Iran was responsible for attacking a ship that Israel owned near Oman, although it's not clear whether there's any evidence to really uh, prove that or to suggest it. Uh, and I'm just sort of generally wondering what you're making of Gantz's uh, stance here towards Iran at this point, as it doesn't seem as though uh, relations there uh, will be improving uh, under Iran's new president. I think that the Israeli regime is under a lot of pressure. There's a great divide between the two factions. Uh, on the one hand, Netanyahu and the current prime minister, and both it is a white right-wing society. So both factions uh, that are at each other's throats, they are desperately trying to uh, attract a right-wing public, and so they make aggressive uh, remarks, often very racist remarks in Hebrew. And uh, I think that uh, in Iran, 
people, the more that they speak in this sort of language, the less seriously they're taking, taken by the Iranian public. It used to be a decade ago or so that when the Israelis made such threats, they were taken more seriously. But nowadays, uh, I don't think too many people really see it that way. On the one hand, we've seen how the Israelis were unable to defeat the Palestinians in Gaza, people who are surrounded, uh, who are uh, living in the largest concentration camp in the world. And uh, yet, despite that, they were able to prevent the Israelis from entering Gaza, and many of their uh, missiles were able to get through the Iron Dome, even though their missiles aren't very sophisticated. They've just begun the process of building uh, missiles. So when the Israelis have such trouble with the, the Palestinians in Gaza, then I think it's quite clear that dealing with Iran or Hezbollah or any other major player in the region is something that is beyond the capability of the Israeli regime to to deal with and uh, to succeed. Yeah, and real quick, just so folks have an idea of what I mean when I say uh, aggressive comments, uh, uh, Gant said that uh, Israel was prepared to engage in what he called a multi-front uh, conflict that could include Iran, saying, quote, Iran is a global and regional problem and an Israeli challenge. And uh, we need to continue to develop our abilities to cope with multiple fronts for this is the future. And so, you know, some pretty openly warlike uh, language there, Jackie. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's interesting, you know, Dr. Morandi, that Israel always tries to paint itself as the victim and as like the potential victim of Iran uh, uh, specifically, which is the justification that that Israeli uh, officials always use to oppose what they believe is the, you know, Iranian nuclear program and this, you know, effort by Iran to get a nuclear weapon, which they always say Iran will immediately use on Israel. And that kind of ideology is behind the Israeli uh, uh, government officials being opposed to um, uh, the um, Sorry, the the reinstitution of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, which actually the new Iranian president, Ibrahim Raisi, wants to reactivate. Um, So, you know, this opposition isn't just rhetorical, though. It's not just strong words. Israel has actually uh, carried out a series of attacks against Iran um, to support this ideology, which really isn't based in fact, but it really is just a part of, you know, Israel's white supremacist, imperialist uh, character. Definitely. On the one hand, the Israelis claim that Iran is developing a nuclear weapon, yet the whole notion of the JCPOA or the nuclear deal was to create a situation and limitations on Iran's nuclear program so that any uh, such fear in the in among Western countries would disappear. Uh, Iran was never pursuing a nuclear weapon, so ultimately they accepted the nuclear deal because those limitations, uh, if if they were going to succeed in overcoming the anti-Iranian propaganda, then the Iran the Iranian administration at the time thought it was worth it. But the Americans, the Europeans, and the Israelis now don't want to implement the deal. So obviously. Either they're not they're not 
truly concerned about Iran's nuclear program, uh, or uh, they are facing, we are, they are pre presenting us with a paradox. So, you know, if, if you're concerned about Iran's nuclear program, then you have to accept the nuclear deal. It's as simple as that. On the other hand, uh, the Israelis, as you rightly pointed out, have murdered an Iranian deputy minister with the help of the United States. They've carried out sabotage in Iran with the help of the United States, and they've attacked 12 Iranian tankers over the last couple of years. No one in Europe and the United States complained about any of those attacks. So now that we have a number of Israeli tankers being attacked, allegedly in retaliation, suddenly the whole of the Western world is outraged. You know, that sort of hypocrisy is something that is not lost upon Iranians. If, if the Iranians, if, let us assume that the Iranians did attack these tankers. They were in retaliation to deter the Israelis from carrying out these attacks. So Europeans and Americans should be criticizing Israel for creating this situation. If, on the other hand, then we have uh, the additional problem of the Israeli regime actually making such threats. If it was the Iranian government who was threatening Israel with war, again, imagine the sort of reaction we'd be seeing in, in the West and among Western countries and the media. But the Israeli defense or minister can threaten Iran with war, death, and destruction, and no one sees anything wrong with that among NATO countries. That definitely seems to be the case. And, you know, I think you're correct when you mentioned earlier, Dr. Morandi, about um, sort of uh, uh, the, the strange position that Israel sort of finds itself in uh, politically, of course, now under the uh, presidency of uh, arch-racist uh, Naftali Bennett. I mean, what do you think this means both in the context of Iran and uh, sort of the Middle East as a region? You know what I mean? As uh, uh, things seem to just be not, uh, perhaps not that stable inside of uh, Israel itself. I mean, do you think that this kind of uh, uh, aggressive posture that it's taking here, I mean, not that they've you know, ever really had a peaceful posture in this uh, context, but I mean, you know, uh, these sorts of statements, I mean, is this a kind of uh, assertion of uh, maybe sort of a reminder that they're still playing that role within the region? Or, or how do you think it plays out there? That's a very good point. I actually think that the more extreme the Israeli regime becomes in its posturing, and in its uh, language, the more reflective it is of uh, the weaknesses that exist inside the country. It is a deeply divided country, a very right-wing country, as I said earlier, but very divided on the one hand. On the other hand, the balance of power has shifted away from, from Israel. The United States and uh, Western countries that have traditionally supported Israel, they have their own crises. And they are facing a, a rising China and other rising nations, including Iran, uh, whereas they are on the relative decline. And on the other hand, we see that the Palestinians, even in Gaza, despite all their the pain and suffering that they face, they're, they're holding their own against the Israelis. And just a couple of days ago, when the Israelis shelled southern Lebanon, Hezbollah struck back and the Israelis went quiet. So there, this is not 20, 30 years ago where the United States was the only superpower, where other countries and other regions of the world were weak, and the Israelis could do more or less what it wanted in many cases. Now the, we're living in a 
very different world, but it seems as if the Israeli regime is unable to adjust to the new reality. Yeah, yeah, I think it's interesting to note how like the geopolitical situation sort of more broadly plays uh, into that. I mean, how do you see that as uh, having that kind of uh, impact on Israel and how these sort of global dynamics uh, sort of uh, uh, have ripple effects and what happens there internally? I think it has a, a huge impact. But in addition to that, I think there's another important issue, and that is that Israel is becoming increasingly unpopular across the world. In the recent war that we saw in Gaza, we saw how in the United States even, which you know, in which the media is always extremely supportive of Israel, uh, many Americans have turned against the, the regime. And perhaps most importantly, many young Jews have turned against the regime because they see through the propaganda, they see what they're doing, they see how they're bringing down towers, media towers, killing uh, hundreds of civilians uh, without any justification. And they, in, in their eyes, this, this cannot be seen as legitimate. So not only is the balance of power shifting away from the United States, whereas the United States is constantly waging wars and spending money on, on bases across the world. We see countries like China focusing on building their economy. So now the United States is overstretched and uh, has serious economic problems on the one hand. Western countries, are on the, as I said, on the relative decline. On the other hand, though, not only is Israel facing an internal crisis, but Israel has also handed uh, its opponents uh, a very important propaganda victory. I, I, you know, if, if one could say propaganda, because it's more than propaganda. It's, it's the reality of Israel that it is an abusive, uh, abusive apartheid regime that carries out brutal acts against Palestinians. And now people, now even Western uh, populations, when they see this, they look upon Israel with uh, disgust, at least uh, large segments of Western countries. So both militarily, economically, but also in the public eye, the Israeli regime is not in a good situation. Yeah. In our last uh, minute or so, doctor, on the flip side, how do you see those same uh, dynamics having a potential benefit for Iran uh, in terms of uh, the strengthening of some of these partnerships, particularly as that country continues to struggle uh, under sanctions? I think the fact that the United States is increasingly antagonizing China and the fact that it continues to antagonize Russia this only serves to help Iran. The more the United States presses China on Taiwan or on Hong Kong or with regards to its internal issues, or the more it tries to sanction China uh, because of its developed economy and the, it's, it, when it tries to hurt China because it's tr competing with it economically, uh, the more China turns to countries like Iran. And uh, the more the United States uh, the, the better the United States behaves towards China, obviously, the, the more uh, uh, incentive there is for China to cooperate with the United States. So the, the trajectory now in U.S. politics is one in which it is uh, pushing countries closer to Iran and therefore helping Iran to overcome its sanctions.
Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. Mirandi, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're moving to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Yeah, and you know, Jackie, I was uh, thinking about this whole issue of uh, student loan debt and student loan payment. There's reports uh, just from Friday that was saying the U.S. Department of Education announcing that uh, federal student loan payments will remain uh, paused until the end of January. And I mean, certainly that's good. And, you know, uh, if, if you were paying it, I know a lot of folks <laughs> weren't paying it, then maybe it won't make that big of a difference. But it's one of those situations, we can put it, I think, in the same category of, you know, canceling the rent and, you know, uh, uh, having a health care for all and like lifting, you know, the patents on all of that on the vaccines. It's just like, you know, well, well even that, because even that last one is sort of perspective. But it, we, with these sorts of things, it's like, well, that's cool. But like you can just you can just cancel it. Right. Right. You can just uh, uh, cancel student loan debt the same way that you can uh, uh, cancel the rent. And all these sorts of things. And, and it's one of many things I think we can point to that the Biden administration and Congress have the power to do, uh, but simply refuse. And I think there's a couple of reasons why that we really have to look at. Number one, as we like to raise on the show, we always have to look at the class character of these things. You know what I mean? And what I'm saying is, is that with people like Biden and our Congress of millionaires, they have donors and special interests and these wealthy people that, that fund them and that are in their pocket. And so to really carry through a lot of these policies that would be beneficial to the masses of poor, working and oppressed people, would be to go against the interest of their paymasters and is, in fact, going against the interests, excuse me, I should say, is going against their own class interests. So, of course, they won't do it. And it's one of those situations that, you know, these are the sorts of, uh, I mean, that would have a, a, a almost, I think, immediate and pronounced positive impact on the masses of people in this country. If you eliminate that student loan debt, if you cancel the rents, and all these sorts of and, and it, these sorts of things actually are possible under capitalism. But since it's not conducive to maximizing profits, which is the aim of capitalism, then it simply won't be done. And so on the flip side of that, I think is how this sort of thing contributes to people sort of declining uh uh feeling of the legitimacy of this system. So the faith in this system, I think, is waning more and more and more. And also the fragility of this system, I think, is uh, increasing. 
And so in a weird way, these sorts of moves, when the when the when people, when these officials keep putting band-aids on these massive problems, in a weird way, they're almost uh, uh, digging the system's grave by trying to preserve it. It's, it's this interesting sort of a dialectic thing that that happens with that. It's like they do all these things to try to sort of hold capitalism together and keep it in one piece as it crumbles. But what that does is shows the masses of people why it shouldn't be saved. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And so particularly from an organizing standpoint, I think we should see that and be able to highlight those contradictions and to to show not only the lie of the system itself, but to show that we can actually be active in bringing about something better. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. The, the student loan thing is really, I mean, it's really wild to me because you've got people who spend a ridiculous amount of money in order to obtain a college degree, ostensibly to get a better job in this society. And they take out a loan in order to get that education that when they graduate from college, they probably don't make enough money to pay off the loan. So there's all this. So, so, so there, is, there, there is an entire uh, different kind of financial apparatus that has been created to provide that service for, for literally just providing loans to people who want to go to college because colleges, they figured out, well, you know what? We can hike up the cost of education because now there are these student loan services services out there and folks can just get loans. for. So it's just this vicious cycle of capitalist exploitation that really creates not only the 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 capitalist class, the folks who control uh, the levers of money in this society, uh, price things that people want and need out of most people's reach. The capitalist system also creates this petit bourgeois, uh, um, you know, uh, small business, uh, not, and and not even small business anymore, but this other class of money making folks. The uh, uh, student loan lenders and yeah, the landlords. And I'm even thinking of payday lenders. The all of these middlemen yeah. that provide a service to people. And that service is taking their money so, I mean, so they can live. So it, it's like these types of moves from the administration to, you know, put off paying student loans back until January, extending the eviction moratorium and, you know, for another two months. That's kicking the can down the road politically. But they're also, from what I can see, they're also trying to avoid a collapse of these systems, Mm. right? Because if they just cancel the rents, then the whole landlord uh, uh, system, that just collapses. That the people that people wouldn't make any money being a landlord anymore, and then the real estate market, you know, all that the the real estate investors and all those folks, that market would collapse if they just cancel the rent. Then the eviction uh, uh, courts, the court systems would collapse pretty much if you just cancel student loans. Then what's going to happen to all of these student loan servicers? Their businesses are going to collapse. So in a way, you know. 
the the government in putting these band-aids on these bullet wounds while they're kicking the can down the road they're also trying desperately to keep these systems from collapsing by just going right ahead and doing what they have uh, the capacity to do, which is just eliminate people's debt. That that they could do it, but then these systems would no longer exist. And then, Sean, people would be like, wait a minute, you you could have just gotten rid of this all along. Right. <laughs> and then that'll cause people to think like, wait a minute. So so you you mean to tell me we don't really need credit scores? We don't really need so they 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 can't have people making these connections. So they're just going to keep kicking the can down the road and trying to save a system that you're right is absolutely crumbling under its own weight. Definitely, and you know I want to give a, a shout out because there are people who are you know already uh, organizing and mobilizing in different parts of the country, uh, particularly around the eviction moratorium. I mean, I see there was a a demonstration uh, over the last few days in Montgomery, Alabama, at the Alabama Association of Realtors office. And like we were saying, Alabama's Realtors office, along with Georgia's, is uh, uh, basically trying to end uh, the moratorium and basically saying, what about the what about the landlords? Mm -hmm. But uh, and this is what I think, you know, and this is the opportunity that arises in moments when we see uh, the government kicking the can down the road politically. I mean, that opens the door for us to say, okay, well, no more kicking the can. Y'all need to stop kicking. Y'all just need to like solve the problem and continue to push and really highlight those um, contradictions. But even swinging back around to the education piece, it's like, why are, why are we charging people to go to school? Right. Like, why is that even a thing that happens, particularly in a country like the United States that has more than the... I mean, you look at countries like Cuba, for instance, that are far poorer than the United States, where people uh, uh, have a, a, a access to a free education, but somehow that isn't possible in the wealthiest nation in the history of nations. And then when we look at, and you touched on this, Jackie, when we look at how people have to live after they get these degrees and graduate, it's like, okay, they get, we get these degrees in these fields. And I know like for me and my generation of graduates, we graduated right into a recession. So jobs were very scarce. And so now it's this weird thing of like having a bachelor's degree is like a baseline requirement to get a job. And it's so it's like, I'm, it's like we're paying all this money just to have this this sort of token thing, just to be able to get the most baseline of work that more likely than not is not even in the field that we study for. Now, you know, education is good. And people, you know, if people want to go to college and get that kind of education, then they should be able to do so. But it's, I just feel like the way this, the education, and I guess we're talking higher education, when we talk about, you know, university, the way it's set up, it almost devalues the, the act of getting the degree itself. You know what I mean? And so, you know, it, it, it's this uh, it's a strange way that even in a resource as essential as education is then made a site for capitalist exploitation and these, you know, predatory lenders and banks and things like that and telling kids like, well, yeah, well, you're taking that alone. Well, why not just, you know, take out some more money just to have so you can pay your rent and do all that and do these sorts of things and 
you'll just pay it back later. No big deal. And you're like 17, 18, 19 years old. And, and this person is just trying to give you all this money. And you're like, why not? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's like they prey upon these young people knowing they don't know any better. And it comes back to bite us um, in the end. And we're just kind of stuck with it. And I was joking earlier, but that's a big part of the reason why like, a lot of people just like straight up don't pay. You know what I mean? Be, because uh, because they can't really. And it's 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 a part of like this whole holistic picture. It's like when you ask the question, what kind of society do you want? Do you want a healthy, well-educated, well-adjusted um, populace? And it seems like any nation would want that. So if you want those things, then it seems that access to those resources have to be made readily available. But since like every other resource in this country under the capitalist system, there's a price tag uh, put on it, all of these things become stressors. They become yet uh, uh, another bill that people have to pay, right? And so it's like when we talk, Jackie, about the rot that's happening in U.S. society, this is a part of it because People have these attitudes like, look, I did what you said I was supposed to do. I went to school. I was there for four years. I graduated. I applied for jobs. There weren't any. I kept plugging. You know what I mean? It's like people, they, they follow the sort of laid out path for quote unquote success and reach like a dead end and run directly into a brick wall, which again, just shows, well, if this is a lie, if this path to success that everyone is supposed to have, if this isn't even real, then is this system even real? And this is where the disillusionment sets in. But see, we're in, we're in like a dangerous moment, I think, because we're dealing with the pandemic. We're dealing with climate catastrophe. We're dealing with um, all these uh, social, political and economic issues that only seem to be intensifying. And there's kind of a vacuum because people, I think, are acutely aware of how bad things are. But. There's nothing, and particularly if they're consuming, you know, like the 24-hour corporate right. news cycle, you're being told how bad things are, perhaps accurately, but you're not being told if there's anything that can be done about it. And so this is where the hopelessness sets in. This is where the pessimism sets in. This is where the nihilism sets in. Right. To where all people are left with is a feeling of, well, I guess I'll just sit here and, and wait for the world to burn up. Because, you know, there's no way I can be active in um, actually changing these conditions. But see, this is where movement comes in and says there is something you can do. You can use your talent. You can use those skills. All those things that you learned that the system has basically let go to waste because it didn't provide any outlet for them. You can bring them to this movement and help build it to where we have the kind of society that not only values those skills and that knowledge, but that centers humanity. Uh, as its top priority instead of profit. Yeah, exactly. And and I think the ironic thing about this moment, Sean, is that, you know, people are who are being fed this steady diet of of doom and gloom. And, and it I, you're right. It is a frightening moment uh, in the history of mankind, not just in this country, but in the entire history of mankind. Um, and and the, people are getting accurate information about how bad it is, but they're not being told why it's that bad. Right. And it is is 
the understanding that the reason it's that bad is capitalism. Like the reason we were sold this bill of goods that, look, if you just get a college degree, then you can live a better life than your parents because you can make more money than your parents. But a bunch of kids go off to college, go to get an MBA or whatever, and then realize that the market is suddenly oversaturated with MBAs and there are not that many jobs for that many MBAs. and. So, you know, the the capitalism created this uh, uh, idea where education, the improvement of oneself through intellectual and cultural pursuits, because that's what education really is, was commodified and turned into something that could be bought and sold. And we were led to believe that if we have a good education, then we're better than everybody else. But then those very people realize, wait a minute, we're being messed over just like those folks who, you know, didn't buckle down and get a good education. So you're right. We have to be very diligent in, first of all, as organizers, not believing that everybody knows the same thing we do and for helping people make this connection so that they don't believe there's nothing I can do. No, what we can do is we can attack and destroy capitalism. Absolutely. And we're going to go to a quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Come on and join us when we return. Please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 9th, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here on By Any Means Necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out. That's right, folks. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rate they can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Brandon Sutton, host of the Discourse podcast and the owner of the largest arms on the left. Brandon, thanks so much for joining us. I mean, after COVID, they've gotten you know, slightly smaller. So it's a little bit, I hate to say, uh, demeaning. Uh, but certainly I'm not in my best. Uh, thanks, but 
Either way, glad to join you too. It's always a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. Absolutely, absolutely. And I tell you what, if someone on the left currently has larger arms than Brandon Sutton, we have not seen them. You need to prove it. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, I wanted to begin today, Brandon. Uh, you're there in New York, and we've been talking to folks up there about the ongoing situation with Governor Andrew Cuomo, the current governor. Uh, whether he'll remain that way, I think, uh, sort of remains to be seen as the walls seem to be closing in, as the New York City Democrats uh, seem to be really um, sort of pushing for impeachment here, uh, you know, along with people uh, as high up as Joe Biden uh, calling for him to resign. And, uh, you know, his top aide, Melissa DeRosa, has actually resigned. Um, the lady who's at the head of Time's Up, Roberta Kaplan, she resigned because she was implicated in um, the same report uh, about Cuomo's harassment um, that of being one of several uh, high profile people that, you know, helped to uh, basically try to discredit uh, one of uh, Cuomo's accusers. Also, his brother, Chris Cuomo, uh, sort of implicated in that as well. So not a bright day for for journalistic standards. But I mean, you know, just sort of generally wondering how all this is striking you, Brandon, as someone who you know, is familiar with the, the New York political scene and has, has lived under Cuomo. I mean, this is just one of several scandals of his we could speak about in terms of, you know, covering up COVID numbers at nursing homes and just all sorts of things. But I mean, what's your takeaway from how all this has developed? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting, especially, and this might not be a unique analysis, in the aftermath of what you were saying, all of the malfeasance that was going on under Cuomo uh, in New York State, uh, hiding the numbers of like nursing home deaths, uh, slave labor at penitentiaries being used to produce uh, right. well, I think, uh, antibacterial hand wash, all of that stuff, all the death and destruction and corruption that preceded all of that, too, uh, sort of flew under the radar of liberals, and now that he might be brought down by, you know, the one standard that they have kind of set for themselves, which is, you know, be at least good on women's and racial issues, broadly speaking. You know, it's interesting to see, A, who circled the wagons around him and who are calling for him, who's calling for him to resign. So I think that you're correct, obviously, that a lot of higher Democrats kind of staked their claim five months ago that, like, well, if they t- it turns out to be true, you know, via this independent investigation, then, you know, we'll probably do the right thing. Who knows? Um, luckily, they're following through with that, but I feel like what I've been seeing a lot more, at least online, is this sort of endless battle that we've been seeing since Trump became president and the, you know, sexual harassment scandals start to bubble up on the liberal and Democrat side of people just, you know, what about it? Like, you know, people continuing that line that they were kind of taught by more liberal aligned uh, political operatives that, well, when you hear criticism of Democrats be a little bit more, you know, well, what about it? And what about Trump? When is Trump going to jail? When is Matt Gaetz going to go to jail for this? When, you know, like, why don't we clear Republicans before we start doing our own sort of, you know, cleaning up house? And so I think that Ultimately speaking, whether he stays in power depends on whether or not he feels like he can establish a big enough coalition of voters due to, like, I mean, both his appeal in New York post-COVID-19 and the willingness to overlook the sexual allegations against him, or if he's going to still, you know, just bow out and relinquish power because the Democratic, you know, powers that be are, like, putting some pressure on him. But I, I you know... 
Cuomo is a bit of a, you know, weird duck in this sense where he just might go rogue. You know, I think it's possible that we'll see him just go rogue. He's denied the allegations. And who knows? Who knows where, you know, if we'll just see another holding of hostage of a population of people based on like the ego of one man. Yeah, I can definitely see Andrew Cuomo going completely rogue and going just wilding out on television, going completely off script at a press conference and and, you know, going full on mob boss, basically, because um, that that's who the guy has always been, I think. And I just kind of think that people are finally being exposed to what New Yorkers have always said is the problem with Andrew Cuomo. But, Brandon, I have been saying for a couple of weeks now that the problem is not only these terrible, <sighs> bullying, gropy, old white men politicians. It's, it's not just them. The problem, I think, is also something that you just uh, touched on, the fact that you know, who circled the wagons around him? And and I I, I get this is like a personal thing with me because I, I just I just I hate it when people just focus on the one politician who did the bad thing. Right. And while, yes, they absolutely those individual people need to be held accountable. But while everybody is going after the Andrew Cuomo's of the political world, their staff, their aides, their attorneys, the people who colluded with them to cover things up. And and especially in the case of uh, uh, Cuomo and the letter that was drafted to discredit one of the victims, uh, you know, the attorney for the Time's Up Foundation. I mean, do you think there is more that needs to be said about the people who, quite honestly, have been enabling this kind of behavior, have known about it, have been enabling this kind of behavior for years? I mean, do you feel like there should be more of a focus on them almost as much as on Andrew Cuomo and, you know, his antics? Well, I mean, absolutely. And I think that, you know, what we're touching on and what we've been touching on and what we have touched on in the past is that we have a culture of unaccountability in America political system. You know, and just broadly speaking of the powerful elite in America, we just lack accountability. And one of the ways that we sort of refuse to hold people accountable or one of the reasons why we refuse to hold people accountable when they're in our group or when they're in groups that we feel aligned with is because of this theoretical cost that would be incurred from the removal of this one powerful figurehead. You know, I'm sure people feel as though they're put in a situation where like, oh, you know, if we inform on Bill Gates because he's meeting with pedophiles or if we inform on like Andrew Cuomo because he's a sexual harasser, it will create this sort of cascade event that will ruin all of these other people's, you know, lives. And so we've created this system, this big man system of government, this big man system of, you know, institutional of institutions where like every not only are institutions too big to fail, but the leaders of said institution are so wrapped up in the personal umbrella, so wrapped up in the the presentation of the institution that like they're too big to fall without like people not accurately, but people sort of ushering in this uh uh, this criticism of trying to hold them accountable, that the consequences would simply be too much for the social order, right? We saw some of this, too, when it came to Al Franken. We see stuff like this when it comes to Democrats all the time. And so it's easy to understand how we have gotten to this place where, like, people feel like it's not only their, you know, 
impulse for monetary reasons to like cover up for bad actors uh, on the Democratic side, on the Republican side, because like they have this problem too, because they also believe they're morally righteous. But like it's you know it's of such detriment to the social order to actually confront the lack of accountability of like the highest people that like you know we just have to come up with special circumstances for all of these people that end up just meaning there can never be an accountability. You know, I think that we're sold this idea that one day we'll be able to hold the right people accountable once it's, you know, time and once we've gotten rid of all of these other issues we're dealing with. But until then, we just have to work with imperfect leaders and imperfect, like, billionaires and all this other stuff. But I think that people are just really not really coming to grips with how how truly lacking in accountability or even the proper tools to hold any of these people accountable we actually are. Because at the end of the day, you know, Andrew Cuomo Michael Rogue, he might decide to run as a third party in New York, in New York State, who knows, right? Uh, to this sort of like to disrupt any kind of democratic uh, move to remove him from power or to call any number of favors that he has. And then what do we do? Right, you know, because we've been letting this stuff percolate for so long and letting these people get so powerful that it's impossible to like extricate them without people making the argument that, well, you're just going to empower Republicans, you're just going to empower the opposing side, and empowering the opposing side, you know, would be giving into such a chaos as to be worse than having a sexual predator as the mayor of, sorry, the governor of New York. And that logically, I think, has been, well, it's irrational, but like logically, it's been sold to people as like a completely reasonable, pragmatic thing to believe and that it will have no effect on their ability to hold other people accountable. And that just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Yeah, this culture of unaccountability, you know, certainly amongst our elected officials, and I feel like this also extends to the media as well, uh, Brandon, on any number of levels. I mean, with this situation specifically, I mean, we could talk about, you know, Chris Cuomo, who's also named as someone who was trying to help, you know, uh, uh, cover up uh, what was uh, happening with these allegations, according to that report. I mean, we see, you know, their whole banter on CNN. They'll get on there and do the cute little, you know, uh, older brother, little brother kind of jostling and, and whatnot. And, you know, it, it it's funny and all, but but it's sort of like, well, where's the accountability for him? I mean, as far as I know, he's still, you know, on CNN. And there are so many narratives we could point to, you know, as it regards the media, because, I mean, it's capitalist corporate owned media. So whether it's, you know, the movement for black lives, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Cuba or North Korea or Iran or China or, or any number of questions where the uh, the corporate owned media could, you know, skew things, you know, leave out important information and sometimes just like outright lie. And there's really no mechanism through which um, to hold them to account once that's uh, uh, raised. And, you know, I can only imagine the reason why is because. A lot of these narratives fall squarely in line with uh, ruling class sensibility, since that's who uh, the media is ultimately constructed for, certainly in their interest. And when you put on a 24 cycle, it gives it an incredible uh, uh, amount of power. And so how do you see this uh, culture of uh, unaccountability being extended to the media apparatus in this country as well, Brandon? Well, I mean, I think that's a good question because, you know, one that we can also loop into the ongoing conversation about COVID-19 and also the, you know, the new conversation that happened this morning as a result of the UN's report on climate change and the the uh, devastating effect it's going to have on humanity. You know, ultimately, I think that for as long as I've been in the media, and I've said this on Twitter recently, probably just today, you know, there seems to have been this conversation going on with whether or not 
people should be allowed to build incredibly large platforms in, you know, ostensibly responsible journalistic outlets entirely based on misinformation, right? Or like, you know, whip up people in the can usually rather should you end rather, should you be able to, you know, build an entire brand on like whipping your viewers into a sort of aggressively ignorant fury where they resist any sort of like outward info, you know, information inflow to change their mind because ultimately you're just trying to, you know, establish yourself as a cult leader slash like influencer. And for as long as I've been in media, the answer has been largely, yeah, you can spread misinformation. You can lead people down the wrong path. You can like platform, you know, people as experts who turn out to not be experts. You can you know, publish articles based on uh, largely lies, and there can't be any accountability as long as the question is still in people's minds whether you are acting in bad faith because you're paid to do so, you know, by the powers that be that want to promote like a neoconservative, neoliberal agenda, or if you're just really stupid. Like if you're just really stupid enough to believe that like, climate change is something that you can put off for another 40 years or whether you just, you're just saying that. And this has been one of the most meaningful conversations, I guess, of the past 20 or 30 years under I have to what, are, what are the auspices of various different, like, you know, cancel culture or free speech absolutism. When in reality, this entire conversation seems to hinge on a handful of media personalities and institutions that we know are operating in bad faith in line for money. You know, not that I think it matters, but like we have allowed this, you know, uh, just a uh, media culture to arise where, you know, it's just okay to publish and say whatever you want as long as you can hide behind a uh, like very thin veneer of, well, I might not, I'm not lying knowingly. I'm just super, super ignorant. I didn't look it up. I think I know everything. That's why I'm, prom- that's why I'm promoting hydroxychloroquine or something to my followers. I just think I know everything. So that's not a reason to quote unquote deplatform me because I have a right to that, to being that stupid. But frankly, you know, I just think that we're seeing the, the consequences of that. Ultimately, I think we're seeing the consequences of establishing a political media sort of class that presumes themselves to be experts or are allowed to operate in bad faith, you know, and, are otherwise unmolested when they are incorrect or wrong, regardless of what or, you know, regardless of whether or not it's because they're just not sure of how to find out the right information or because they're lying for attention and money. And so, like, this lack of accountability in the media just seems to hinge on the fact that one day, you know, it might be turned onto the average person, uh, this sort of censorious behavior for, like, you know, even though they're operating in good faith. And so we can never do anything about the people operating in bad faith or the various, you know, media empires that they have started because like, it's just too slippery a slope. And I mean, I, I don't know what, what a recourse we have for dissemination of information and getting people on board for like solving climate change or trying to combat climate change at this point, or like combating COVID-19 infections. If there can't ever seem to be a agreed upon standard for like, well, you know, the thing that you publish, at least have to have like citations, <laughs> you know, they have to have citations to real sources that are not just like your other articles because you're not an expert in anything. 
But I think we've, con- I mean, not we, I haven't conceded that, but I think that's just been a concession that we've seen be conceded because a lot of people, you know, embarrassingly enough, no longer presume themselves to be like temporarily embarrassed millionaires, but just, you know, one or two good tweets from being a, a New York Times op-ed columnist. And so they have to be like really careful about not alienating those people in that sort of social class and also not establishing a bar too high that, you know, one day might lead to them getting deplatformed for saying the wrong thing or something racist or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you know, I think that's uh, I think that's true because I think particularly with social media, particularly with, with Twitter, you know, and the way that it's used, I mean, there really seem to be like an element of people who want to try to like tweet their way to like a career or to prominence or if like all it'll take is, you know, a, a viral tweet and, you know, they'll, they'll be on their way and then they can, build their own platform or, you know, you know, have their own channel or something like that. And it's just sort of like the, the oddest thing. And I think it's a part of the consequence of there being a social media where it's like everybody has a platform. So it gives people this idea that like everybody's opinion is equally valid and that, that's, you know, just not the case. I mean, certainly people can post what they like in the broadest sense, but I don't know. I think it just what creates the kind of weird and, and sometimes often uh, toxic, I think, uh, uh, culture on social media in general. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Brandon Sutton. Hey, it's Monday. And, and Brandon, it is Monday. And Brandon... By any means necessary, chat, I have some good news. We got ourselves a new billionaire. Give it up for Rihanna, our latest uh, black billionaire. And and I wanted to talk about this with you, Brandon, because obviously uh, this is a result of the success of her very popular beauty line and makeup line, Fenty Beauty. And I've been getting aggressively uh, advertised to for the Fenty men's products. I'm not interested. But uh, be that as it may, you know, this is sort of a thing that seems to be happening pretty regularly, Brandon, in the sense that, you know, you have a popular person in Rihanna. They have a product. People support her. It blows up. They achieve this impossible wealth and people applaud that. And then someone and then people come along and say, well, you know what? Actually, billionaires are like bad as a concept. It's not good for one person to have that much wealth. Because it always comes with deep uh, exploitation. That's the only way you can get that much money. And there are people who will acknowledge that and say, well, yeah, that's generally true. But if someone's going to do the exploiting, shouldn't they at least uh, uh, be black as if that like uh, uh, makes it better? And it feels like, you know, something it feels like a conversation that we're having almost pretty uh, regularly. And I think that the, the thing about Rihanna, though, is, is a little different, I think, only because 
she is a celebrity who sometimes has decent to good political takes. And like, I know recently she, you know, tweeted about the, the, the farmer's strike and protest in India. And even that raised some questions about the mica or the mica. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's this substance that I believe is used in her uh, makeup in a lot of makeup products, not just hers, that is sourced from India and is often gathered using child labor. And that's like a whole thing, like the National Commission for Protection of Child Rights got um, uh, uh, involved with it. And there's like a, certif- a, a certification process that people go through to make sure that the mica that they get is not wrought from child labor. And, you know, it's not clear uh, whether that's the case with Rihanna, but she's not alone in this, right? Like, people may remember some years ago, um, uh, Beyonce and her Ivy Park line, it was fine that that was using a sweatshop labor, paying people very little money to make these clothes. Uh, Brandon, I don't know if you're familiar with Drea Michelle. This was a woman who gained uh, fame and recognition on the reality show Basketball Wives, and she kind of became a part of the reality star to girl boss uh, pipeline. She actually tweeted um, uh, a picture of like a, a, a garment like manufacturing center and people were, you know, tweeting at her saying it looked like, you know, she was running a sweatshop and all these sorts of things. But this is the reality, not only about the, the reality of how the products we use are made, because this is like the reality of like our clothes, our food, you know, just the stuff that we use on a daily basis. At the other end of it, oftentimes, it's very ugly and deeply exploited labor practices. But, you know, Brandon, in talking about this, this broader conversation around, like, black billionaires, and what's, and what's at the root of it, I think, is how, you know, how consciousness is so skewed. We're all taught to believe that this is the greatest, best system that ever existed, right? And that we just need to try to get our slice of the pie or our, or our seat at the table, as is so, so commonly known. But, you know, that seat seems to almost always come at the ultimate expense of, you know, poor and working people. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I think that, you know, the idea that the road to equality necessitates that we have like a colorblind, oh, you know, colorblind, genderblind, oppressive, you know, class first, that we reach the point in which we have equal representation of like billionaires amongst race and gender and sexuality. I think, you know, it's a liberal stalling tactic. It's a neoliberal stalling tactic. We, you know, it's a way to imply that there is a slow incrementalism towards like economic equality that, you know, we can get to without necessitating uh, rapid change in the way we redistribute funds in order to reach, right? I have no necess- I have no problem with a company someone runs theoretically making a lot of money, right? I think where we sort of like reach that kind of like weird level is like, well, what does that mean for like the individuals who quote unquote own that company? Who are they? And how much of that, like, you know, should they be allowed to take home? And I just disagree with the idea that anyone should have a billion dollars. I mean, if your company makes a billion dollars, then you know, partially that should be uh, allocated to the people who work there. Should be allocated to taxes. Should be allocated to you know, obviously paying back the your portion of what you uh, use to facilitate your uh, business. Right? I think the idea that like companies are allowed to work without paying taxes because they 
don't, or rather people don't recognize that they are constantly utilizing taxpayer-funded roads, constantly utilizing taxpayer-funded resources like the USPS uh, delivering Amazon packages is, you know, a failure of the journalistic class and a failure of our political class to really highlight that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, these people aren't necessarily making this money without government subsidies. And therefore, they should be forced to pay some of that back towards the same coffers to give other people chances. Instead, you know, people are just taught that, like, well, if Rihanna can make it, you can. And I always found it, I always find it to be a little interesting that people tout out these examples because the only reason people ever like know of these examples is because of how rare they are. It's like, you know, the number of black billionaires in America or especially popular ones who've gone there through like hard work, like rapping or whatever is so low that you can more or less, they more or less are able to tout out a new one whenever they come and actually, you know, some sort of like sign of hope, but they're just exceptions to the rule. It's like, I think that's a really, you know, weird thing about Americans' pattern recognition that is definitely enculturated in them young, that they should identify exceptions to, to the rule and anomalous things that occur as a result under capitalism as like signs of the ever, you know, redeeming qualities of capitalism and its potentiality to deliver these results, even when, you know, it, it, just, it just doesn't. You know, it it's so it's so unlikely that you'll become a billionaire, you know, honestly, whether you're black or not in America, if you're not born with that kind of wealth, that it's almost laughable. It's much more likely that you'll have your life meaningfully impacted negatively by someone else becoming a billionaire. And, you know, that's just disguised from us by this individualistic culture that tells everyone that they're the protagonists of their own world. And how could they not be destined for such a level of greatness when, you know, there's an example of somebody else doing it? It's like, it's very, you know, past the buck. It's very like, well, it's not the job of the government to provide a bottom floor for any for any and every citizen or any every occupant of America. It's more your individual job to uh let's say take advantage of America's lack of labor laws, lack of, you know, care for its people, and use that to catapult yourself into like a billionaire position by exploiting others. And, you know, it's I don't know. It's delusional. I think it enculturates in the people a sense of selfishness that we're seeing come to head with COVID-19. It enculturates in people a sense of myopathy. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. That comes uh, from, you know, only being able to see five feet in front of their own face in a, with a media culture that encourages them to, you know, not look outwardly for the answers to, you know, hey, why does my life suck? Like, why am I unable to pay my rent? You shouldn't look outward. You shouldn't read theory. You shouldn't listen to like all of the labor uh, law theorists of the you know past hundred years. Instead, you should just you know think about like why you haven't been able to work hard enough to manipulate the levers of Bitcoin or whatever to get yourself a million dollars or a billion dollars like over the course of like twelve months. And, you know, it's it's a system designed to demean and degradate people's sense of, you know, self-esteem. And I think it works while still making people incredibly aggro by teaching them to like, well, you know what, if you can't be a billionaire, at least you can live vicariously through Rihanna's billionaire, whatever. And if someone insults that, you should take it personally because, hey, that's just part of your ego now. Part of your ego is Rihanna being a billionaire because you consume her music or makeup. And the fact that she'll never be one, well, let's just forget about that. Yeah, and you know, when you mentioned the Bitcoin thing, I just found out about this company. It's ran by this dude. It's called like Black Bitcoin Billionaire. 
And it's that, and they're asking about the name, and he's like, "Well, yeah, you know, a part of it is it, it's aspirational." And and to be fair, their their thing is not like just get a little Bitcoin and you'll be fabulously wealthy, but like you know that you're in this because you're down to put in the time to invest in it or whatever. But even still, and you know, I, I feel like there are sort of uh, broader implications on this, Brandon. When we talk about just sort of how. Uh, uh, I mean, this is an overused word, but I think it's appropriate how toxic like celebrity culture is in the United States and this culture of celebrity worship um, that we have. And, you know, we we have a comment in the chat here, a tempo decimal who said uh, there's too many celeb drama and pop culture news now. And well, he says he's gladly unaware of them. And, and, you know, I think it's an interesting point in the sense that we are sort of bombarded and constantly seeing and consuming the images and faces of celebrities and what they're doing and what they're wearing and their weight gain and their relationships and all these sorts of things and the products that they like. And I mean, full disclosure, I don't know about y'all. I love to sit on the couch and watch like these ridiculous, you know, uh, reality shows, all, all, you know, bar rescue, all this stuff, even the stuff that's like clearly scripted. It's just great, mindless uh, uh, viewing, especially with a friend. But I feel like this is a part, Brandon, of how people become so attached to celebrities and how people begin to identify their own identity with that of these people that they'll likely, you know, never meet in a way, you know. And there's celebrities in any culture, but I feel like there's like a particular way that celebrity is kind of parsed in an American capitalist society that's just downright weird in a way, in a way that, frankly, I think can separate people um, from reality. It's like, you know, the thing about the, the fandoms and the hives and all of that. So now there's a, it's like a community of people who have attached themselves to the persons of this person. Now, ain't nothing wrong with liking what someone does, with liking an actor or a singer or a rapper or Whatever. And you know what? We were talking about social media and I might be off on a rant here, but I was thinking the other day about like what it means to be an influencer like that as a concept is pretty wild. Right. Because to me, if a person is an influencer, that means that you have developed a following, not necessarily because you can do something well. Not because you can act or sing or rap. And, you know, maybe you cook, maybe you got vegan recipes, maybe you do fitness. But people are generally attracted to you because of, like, how you look, how you dress, the lifestyle you lead. There's, like, a whole genre on TikTok of people just showing you what a day in their life is like. You know what I mean? And so, and that, and that becomes, like, a job. You know what I'm saying? And I ain't hating. I mean, get it how you live. I mean, you know, if I could make a decent living just like showing people me walking into the studio and sitting down and talking like I do it. But, you know, uh, uh, it's sort of this broader thing about how celebrity has now been distilled to the individual level to where now almost anyone with like the right move or the right post or whatever could do the same thing. This is why people buy followers and do all this crazy stuff um, because just building the platform is what, you know, brings in the dollars. You know what I mean? And so how do you see sort of the question of celebrity culture uh, factoring into all of this, Brandon? Well, you know, celebrity culture is one thing, but I think, you know, uh, 
that I will address after I make this point, but I think you hinted towards something that, you know, sort of tied up in this, but also even kind of more important, which is that for, you know, for all the talk about like capitalism and professionalism and like whatever, you know, the goal is to turn the everyday average American in not into like a consumer or voter or citizen, but largely just like a fan, you know, a fan and, you know, it's to turn all of these other people who theoretically have like responsibilities other than, you know, being a literal celebrity or influencer whose job it is to sell lifestyle into like brands and celebrities. And by that, I mean, it's just like, as a consumer, as a voter, as all of these things that, you know, are very informal transactional relationships, you're allowed to make demands of the companies you buy from to, like, not sell you garbage. You know, you're allowed to make demands of voters because despite the whole laughing at, like, hey, you know, you work for me, like, it's true. Like, it's a transactional relationship. You vote for somebody so they will do the thing that you vote for them for. And if they don't, you don't vote for them. You know, that has been slowly treated as though it's somehow unreasonable to, like, demand that the professional transactional relationships exist as something other than like, yeah, you know, you're no longer a Hillary Clinton voter or someone who might vote for her or a Democratic voter. You know, you're more or less just a fan of Hillary Clinton. You're a fan of Barack Obama. And the distinction is that those relationships are much more informal and much more geared towards getting you to supplant your sense of self with the sense of self or some other personal celebrity or brand, right? Because my perspective, the moment you sort of commodify your own person, you become like a writer who writes professionally in an, an organization or a politician, you, you know, you lose the ability to predict, act aggrieved by someone treating you as though you are, in fact, like a brand or customer service oriented position, right? If that makes any sense. And so, like, I think what we've had more is that, yeah, everyone presumes themselves to be one step away from celebrity. And part of the reason why that is so appealing is that, well, you know, now everyone is one step away from a type of celebrity that you would theoretically have some kind of responsibility, like, let's say, pundit or like a journalist or something like that, but they're allowed to pretend as though those responsibilities from like a literal professional level to simply don't exist because like, well, you know, these people are my fans. They're willing to like live and die by whatever thing that I say, as opposed to demanding that we have like a level of standard that would come from like a consumer. And so the second part of your thing about like becoming a celebrity, I think is also incredibly important because at the end of the day, people are trying to, and I think they've been successful, especially going back to our conversation about like, you know, the media lack of accountability to pretend as though like there is a human right to be famous. Like you have a human right to be able to not simply write or speak your mind or free speech, but you have a human right to simply, you know, or civil right to simply have access to tens of thousands of followers, tens of thousands, tens of millions of people, whatever place you find yourself in where you're most famous, and that any move from that, you know, would simply be censorious, right? So like, I think that we what we've seen really is this lack of of around this transition of the American people from like what should be allowed as like a transactional relationship with media, like, hey, I spend my money on this product, you give it to me, I give you my vote, you give me what I want, into like in transforming your, you know, the everyday average person into a position where they have even less, you know, less grounds for being or voicing any aggrievement at the people, you know, the celebrities, quote unquote, the brands, the institutions that purport themselves, regardless of whether that's one person or like an entire institution, entire like, you know, 
500, 600 employee company, you know, they're allowed to just basically erase their part of, you know, that relationship. Like, you know, they're just doing you a favor. Like when Hillary Clinton works or does like her job as secretary, she's doing you a favor because in reality, she's not a public servant. She's like a celebrity. And, you know, again, I think this is just a very dysfunctional way to view society. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Brandon Sutton is here. And, uh, you know, shout out to uh, uh, Ricky Ryan in our chat, who raised a really interesting point. She so I'm also wondering how much of this goes into corporations being seen and treated as people in terms of policies. That's very interesting because, you know, if if your favorite influencer on Instagram is, is shilling for whatever product, well, then, you know, it's not like a big faces corporation. It's your favorite person and their pretty right. face. So it's yeah, that, that's definitely interesting. And while we're on the point of celebrity, I mean, you want to talk about celebrity worship, Brandon, we could talk about Barack Obama who just had uh, his swanky, reportedly uh, scaled back 60th birthday party in Martha's Vineyard, because that's where they live. And, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, you know, reportedly uh, John Legend and, and Chrissy Teigen is there. I'm still trying to figure out what Chrissy Teigen does. I know she does something. Is she an actress? She, well, she was an actress. Okay. She, she bullies people online. That's like, but yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. She, she bullies people online and then is like, well, y'all are bullying me for bullying people. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to get off Twitter. Um, also, reportedly, Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union uh, were uh, seen uh, on Martha's Vineyard, along with Don Cheadle, who you may remember as a uh, mouse from Devil in the Blue Dress. That was a great performance. And uh, and I really mean that he was great. But yeah. And, and, and so this thing about like Obama in the 60th birthday bash, you want to talk about celebrity worship. I mean, I don't know if anyone has been able to uh, cake off the post-presidential hustle as most, uh, as much as uh, uh, Barack Obama. There's even like photos of him dancing. Like I think his DJ took some photos that they had to delete later because they had like a strict no photography policy and, and things like this, Brandon. And, you know, it's just, it's just wild to me how this cat continues to enjoy like the legitimacy that he does not only given what he did in the eight years he was in office, but what he's done since like he attacked the movement for black lives that exploded under his watch. And then you fast forward some years and he's flapping his gums about like defunding the police being empty rhetoric when his whole campaign was built on empty rhetoric. Open change, change we can believe in, all of this. That's, that's, that's phrase-mongering, right? And we later come to find out there wasn't much substance there. But it, it, I kind of feel like Obama is, he's living what he wanted to live. 
This is why he wanted to be president of the United States and planned out and plotted his life accordingly and got rid of his white girlfriend and got with Michelle because he knew that that was going to be all these sorts of things that he, you know, did to make sure that he was properly placed to uh, be in place to do the thing at the right time in terms of being president so that he could live this life of prominence and affluence and all these sorts of things. And so I don't know if you've given much thought to uh, Obama's birthday party, Brandon, but if you do, just just wondering what you're thinking about it. No, I mean, I haven't given much thought to the birthday party specifically, but I 100% agree with you that Obama just wanted to be famous. Like, if you were to con- if you were to make a compelling argument that Obama really wanted to be like an actor or something like a Denzel Washington-style actor, but there's like one day was just like, I'm not going to be that good at acting or that attractive enough to like get to that level of fame. I'm going to go into politics. I would believe that. Because like ultimately, the way in which he comports himself at post-presidency, it's almost as though he wants you to forget that he became famous as being a president who oversaw like one of the largest transitions of wealth from you know the bottom to the top, and instead wants you to pretend like he got famous some other way uh, um, by like being uh, essentially like a pundit on MSNBC and like a constitutional law professor for the past ten years, right? It's it's you know it's just abstraction of time that American politicians rely on when they talk about like what makes them, you know, experts in being politics, experts in like, you know, uh, like winning elections despite having laws. Like it's why they have what Claire McCaskill or something on the news, like uh, condemning politicians who are winning their elections, even though she lost theirs. It's just like incredibly abstract way to treat like people's time in office as still like everything that happened during it was out of their control, but you should still grant them the sort of authority that would come from having that position as though they did something with it that was worthwhile. And, you know, we've gotten used to it. Obama just seems bothered when he has to do like politics related things. He just wants to hang out with rich people. He just wants to hang out with like Richard Branson. He wants to hang out with Richard Branson. And then, you know, he wants to sort of be this tastemaker Democratic Party, at least to the extent that, you know, they don't ruin his legacy and make it harder for him to be a celebrity. But ultimately, I said it before, I was thinking he just wants to put out mixtapes. Like every, like whenever something bad happens in the news, like 100 million people die of COVID 19 or some nonsense in America, he just wants to put out like, you know, his. 80s R&B throwback jam mixtape and have you feel good about it and not be like, okay, but, you know, there's this gene- genealogy of things that happened that you could have sort of got ahead of, you know, that would have prevented these deaths. Like, we don't do that here. Like, you know, every election, every next election is the most important election of our lives, not because of any practical concern, or rather not only because of any practical concern about like, well, you know, we got to actually be changing things in the future because you can't change things in the past, but literally be, so that we don't look back and like question what people were doing and how we got to like the problem that suddenly is becoming the defining problem of this election, right? You know, it's just like refusal to engage with the past in America that prevents us from ever really having any meaningful step forward to sort of these, dissolve these systems that are leading us, you know, you know, the ones that were leading us to ignore climate change are the same ones that are purporting, or rather are the same ones that, like, ended up convincing people that they were, you know, cognizant or, like, hyper-competent enough to 
you know, determine whether vaccines are are effective based on some, you know, research on Facebook, right? And it was all fine and dandy when, like, that was useful for capital to avoid having to come to terms with killing the environment or, like, the many ways in which racism or whatever, you know, whatever other bigotry keeps uh, workers down. But now that, like, you know, capital can't really move forward with 100, you know, 100,000 cases a day of COVID-19 in America for long, you know, it's this mad dash to figure out how do we, you know, fix the problem like we always try to do without actually fixing any of the, like, predicate causes that, like, led the problem to occur, except for in the most, like, perfunctory way. You know, this whole discussion about celebrity and branding, you know, Pookie Wood in the chat, which I got to say, our chat for this show is just like the most fun thing because folks be in there having side conversations and and okay, I admit sometimes I I perpetuate those and and you know it, to, but it it's to. it's I mean people raise some great points. Pookie Wood in the chat said that Obama is a brand like Apple, Nike, J, Coca-Cola, etc. And you know what? I think that's absolutely accurate and I think that is the way Brandon that in general Americans view politics and politicians. They're all like celebrities. They're a brand. Like the way we had such a problem criticizing the policies of Barack Obama because of who he was. He was this untouchable, mythical figure that represented something because that's what a brand is. It is the representation of something, usually a corporation or, or, or a company. Barack Obama was the brand of the Democratic Party and of this myth of American uh, equality, right, and opportunity. So you, you people are, are really in love with those ideals that are not true, and it doesn't matter how untrue they are. You, people don't want you to attack the brand. It's like, you know, you, you can't say bad things about Coca-Cola if you love Pepsi because it doesn't matter that both of them are, you know, contain so much sugar that if you drink them regularly, they'll, you know, negatively impact your health. But people love their Coca-Cola or Pepsi in my case, which I can't drink anymore because guess what? It impacted my health. But I mean, I I look at the way people, Brandon, in general, respond to politicians and what they do. And it is very much centered around the celebrity influencer, you know, brand kind of thing. You can't say anything negative about Corey Bush because we love her. We, you can't say anything about AOC because we love her. And it's, and it's it, people we never get around to criticizing the actions, the policies, and honestly, the system that produces the kinds of actions people feel like they need to do to, quote unquote, get a result or get attention. We focus on either bashing politicians to expose them or defending politicians to protect them because, you know, they, they need to be protected. And, and, I, and in that way, I just feel like it's all a big celebrity circus. It just happens not to be like influencers on TikTok. Instead, it's, you know, congressmen that are called the squad, I guess. You know what I mean, Brandon? No, I do. I think I was hitting, hinting at that a little earlier where it's, you know, everyone, 
every you know, in our political circles now has become sort of a brand, right? Which I don't think is necessarily a problem per se for like someone, you know, for someone to become a brand, right? You know, the Michael Jordan sells sneakers. Obviously, those have their own problematic nature. But you know, it's no it's no problem for like someone to say be a comedian and their brand is themselves. I think what we see a lot of is a very specific kind of dynamic that has been, you know. Uh, foisted upon us where we're forced to sort of like pivot back and forth from like, okay, well, is Obama a politician slash brand slash institution that we are engaging in a transactional relationship with? Like I vote for Obama, he gives something back to me. Or is Obama like a person slash celebrity who if who you don't have any right to make any demands of because they're just like an individual doing their thing? And I think that, you know, like if you don't like their quote unquote, their content, you should just go somewhere else. And it's just like, I don't necessarily agree with that latter part. And I think that that's what the kind of celebrity culture that we have sort of indoctrinated here, because it just allows, you know, more or less, not for celebrities, like individual celebrities to get away with like what like their negative crap they're doing. It allows for like institutions, like you said, who are like weaponizing individuals, whether they be their own like employees who they're holding hostage by saying, if you, hey, if you shut down health insurance companies, what are all these people who like make their living doing that they're going to do? Or, you know, just like, we're from, you know, just with like celebrity, you know, celebrity branding in a way that makes people sort of associate a product with a particular person, right? I, you know, as a leftist, don't have problems with companies. I have the problem with, you know, this weird relationship where we have with them, where we're not allowed to make any sort of demands as though they exist in some sort of lawless zone, right? I think that what we, you know, I think we've touched on this on the show before, like whenever we talk about like whether or not people are being canceled or not, we, we seem to presume as though you have a right to, as a person, be your own brand slash celebrity slash, you know, whatever company. And like, you're just, you know, that, that's just what the marketing is. Like Obama has the right to be his own uh, company if he wants. And that the company that you create with your own image should get all of the benefits of being a person, which is kind of what, you know, someone mentioned before with like, we now we uh, combine company who with personhood. It's like, yeah, it's part of that. But in reality, you know, if you decide to, you know, make commodify yourself, make yourself a brand, make yourself an influencer, then actually that curtails your rights, right? You know, that curtails your rights to free speech because you're no longer like saying things, you're no longer telling jokes or like, you know, promoting stuff for the sake of like, hey, I'm just a person who promotes things, you know, that's my thing. You're doing it for the explicit sake of making money. That was eventually what caught up with Instagram influencers with the fire Fest thing where they were finally forced to be clamped down on them and talk about endorsements because before that they just existed in this weird like gray area where like well you know it's sort of your job the the fans job the voters job any sort of like uh synonym you want to use for like whoever is not the person in the dominant position in that circumstance between celebrity or politician or brand it's your job to sort of sort through all of the you know all of the trash we let into our sort of uh into our environment. Your, so it's your job to sort through like the bad, poorly sourced articles that we publish along with the quote-unquote good articles that have the right information because we can't, you know, be bothered to do that. And, you know, if you try to go out of your way to say, okay, well, hey, you know, people who promote vaccine 
conspiracies in mainstream news sources for, or like even using your platform they've gained from mainstream news sources should at least be subject to some kind of accountability. You know, they just pivot towards, well, actually, I'm a person and I'm not speaking to you in the capacity of my professional job. I'm speaking to you as like somebody who has all the rights afforded a private citizen. And like, we just seem to be too willing to allow people to jump before back and forth between like private citizen who doesn't have any real quote unquote responsibilities to maintain a level of accountability to like whatever the rest of society, which I don't agree with either to like, now I'm president Obama and you should, you can have to show me the respect that comes with that office, but I have none of the responsibilities that come with it. And that to me, I think is the, the draw of celebrity culture now where you can just be famous. And if people, you know, for influencing, for lifestyle type influencing, and if somebody tries to hold you to any sort of real like standard, you just go, well, you know, it's not my job to produce blanks for you. It's, you know, it's not my job to do that for you. And it's like, well, when it comes to like an influencer on Twitter, that sort of makes sense depending on the, you know, depending on the circumstances. When it comes to like politicians and companies and like other stuff like that, like that stuff is, you know, it's unmanageable and dysfunctional for a society to allow it. If that makes any sense. I think I might have gone off track there. No, 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 I get that. And I think when you mentioned the the fire festival, that that's such like an interesting example about this thing that kind of only existed as a concept. And but it was given legitimacy through what celebrities and I'm gonna be real. I had like a fire festival type of thought the other day because I saw this flyer. I wish I could remember the name of this uh, proposed event. It was this concert, supposedly, with just this massive lineup. I mean, it just seemed like every artist on earth was going to be there. And I really raised my eyebrow when I saw that like Lauren Hill supposedly was going to be there. Cause I'm like, all right, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> you sure she's yeah. going to be there. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we all, we all know the deal with, with, with Miss Hill on that, but it felt like a same sort of thing. You know, it seemed to kind of be playing on people's because this was kind of before, this was like just before the Delta variant was clearly spiraling out of control and people wanted to have more of these, huge uh, outdoor festival concert events like Lollapalooza and and Rolling Loud and things like that. But it just wasn't 100% clear whether this is something that could even happen from a basic logistics standpoint. So that definitely seems to be um, a concept that we see. And see, you know, I think that this this, 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 this Hollywoodization, uh, this celebritization of everything that we're talking about, Jackie, I have to see it as part and parcel of the skewing of the consciousness of the masses of people. Because if you're just thinking about getting the bag or getting a certain amount of likes or, or retweets, then you're not thinking about sort of the broader issues that, that are happening in the world and all these sorts of things and how it impacts you, your community, your people and things like this. Now, I'm not mad. Look, I'm on social media uh, like a lot of people. You know what I'm saying? I'm not mad at you posting your, your stuff or posting, you know, your sandwich or your cat or, or things like that. I would actually love to see your pets. They're adorable. But see this and, and in the same way that celebrities become sort of a part of people's personality. So do like our social media accounts. So it's this Weird thing to get us, again, tied into products instead of focus on the real deal. Well, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. Want to thank Brandon Sutton so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.